1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere
0: you do business.
1: Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton museum's historian and curator. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. My name is Vince Houghton. I'm the historian and curator here at SPY. I'd like to welcome you to another one of our author debriefing programs on a rare Friday night, so we're really appreciative of you coming out tonight. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with who we have here with us. Uh, We are pleased to... uh have Annie Jacobson here at the Spy Museum. She's an investigative journalist and best-selling author who writes books about war, weapons, U.S. national security, and government secrecy, not to mention intelligence. Her 2011 nonfiction bestseller, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base, has been published in five languages, as has her 2014 nonfiction bestseller, Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. The Boston Globe and Apple iTunes chose Operation Paperclip as one of the best books of 2014. Her newest book, The Pentagon's Brain, An Uncensored History history of DARPA, America's Top Secret Military Research Agency, was published on Tuesday. Uh, And after reading it, I'm fairly sure it won't take long before it joins your other two books as a bestseller. Thank you, Annie, for coming to the International Spy Museum. Thank
0: you
1: for having me. So I I wanted to ask you, just as we get going, do you have on your bookshelf at home... Copies of your books in all five languages. Yeah. My volume, okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you have I'm copies so of your books in all five languages on your bookshelf at home?
0: I, I, I actually do. Okay, my I kids think too, they're so. really, really cool. <laughs> the Chinese one in particular.
1: That's not on my car. <laughs> I had to ask mm-hmm. that. So, one thing that we always want to do uh, when we have authors here, especially considering that our authors tend to write about a field that's not necessarily the most conducive to getting information and documents, mm-hmm. the, the secret world of intelligence or national security. And it's really a two-part question. It's—it's it's, How did you come across the idea of writing a book about DARPA? And how in the world do you find the sources necessary to write a full-sized nonfiction book about a very top-secret agency that does things that they don't necessarily want historians to know about?
0: Um, well, for starters, I want to thank some of those sources. Paul, mm-hmm. thank you for coming, Neil. And some folks in the back, thank you. Thank um, you. I The way that I got the idea for writing The Pentagon's Brain actually came, as most of my books do, on the tail end of the last book. And when I was learning about what Von Braun was doing in 58, I was surprised to learn that he was the, going to be the first director of this new agency at the Pentagon called ARPA. and um, And he wanted to be the director. However, he had one stipulation, which was he wanted to bring 12 of his former Nazi colleagues with him, and that did not fly at the Pentagon, so they looked elsewhere for a director, and that director was Herb York, but I thought, what a spicy way to start out an agency uh, with controversy, with secrecy, with backstory, and so I immediately looked into it, and when I learned how little has actually been written about DARPA, I really thought this is going to be a great book.
1: Which is surprising to me, because as a science geek, I mean, DARPA is something I've known about for quite Mm. some time, and we'll talk... For those of you that don't know a lot about DARPA, and maybe we should say it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, just to get that out of the way. Mm -hmm. And for clarity's sake, it was called ARPA at one point. Now it's DARPA. We'll just call it DARPA, just to keep it consistent. Um, As we'll talk about tonight, there's some major innovations that we use in our everyday lives that, are a result of DARPA research. So when your book came out, or when the idea of it, I'm like, there has to have been a book about DARPA. And of course, there hasn't been a major work of this level. Um, What you last said was a great segue. I want to talk about the origins uh, of DARPA and why it really comes about and and a little bit about what it is as an organization. I think DARPA is different than a lot of the other military research organizations in that it's not really a military research organization in in a, a sense in that it doesn't really do scientific research. Can you talk a little bit about how DARPA is formulated?
0: Well, DARPA has approximately 120 program managers and has almost its entire existence working with a $3 billion budget. And yet, these individuals themselves are scientists, engineers at the top of their game. So they go out into the field, be it academic laboratories or other military laboratories, and they put together teams that bring forth this incredible science and technology, and in essence, create entire industries
1: and we'll we'll talk about a couple of those industries because they're incredibly important. Um, You had alluded to the impetus behind why DARPA was formed, and you said 1958. And I I think, as a historian, dates matter, certainly. Um, But there's a real significant reason that DARPA was formed in 1958. Mm -hmm. It follows in the footsteps of some pretty monumental events in world history. Can you talk a little bit about what caused the United States government Mm -hmm. to think they needed an agency like this?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I opened the book with a scene... Uh, the explosion of the Castle Bravo thermonuclear bomb in the Marshall Islands, this massive 15 megaton explosion, four years before DARPA is formed. But I do that because I think it's important to know the reason why DARPA was formed, and that was initially to defend against this weapon in essence, which there is no defense against. And that brings us to the heart of the idea of the military-industrial complex and this idea that we must always be supreme. We must have these incredible weapons to stay ahead of the enemy. And yet at the same time there's a knowledge built in that the enemy will eventually have that same technology and so we must be on to the next. And that that is that give and take that Eisenhower talks about. But specifically when Sputnik was launched um, and that idea that whatever law Sputnik, that Soviet long-range missile, could carry a nuclear warhead in its nose cone to the United States. That gave birth to DARPA. And the idea was we must never again be taken by technological surprise. And it is amazing that in all the years since, DARPA has really always kept America in the pole position, kept us the strongest. There has never been an overtaking of American science and technology in terms of weaponry
1: and we're both too young to remember this time period, but there may be some in the audience who are of a uh, more wise age that remember the, the, the fear of nuclear war back during the 1950s and, and the fear that even trickled down into the scientific world. This is a period where Robert Oppenheimer, who, who helped build the American atomic bomb, because he speaks out against the hydrogen bomb, is stripped of his security clearance, is essentially mm-hmm. stigmatized. And the idea that the Soviets could overtake us just about any day, the bomber and missile gaps and everything else, led in many ways to the idea that this, this idea, we have to stay ahead technologically.
0: Well, here's an interesting detail. One of the first things that Herb York did as director of ARPA was determined, and I don't think this had been reported before. I found it in Herb York's files, actually, was that he had ARPA scientists calculate the exact number of seconds it took for a Soviet ICBM to get from the Soviet Union to Washington, D.C., it's an astonishingly short time. It is 1,600 seconds. That is it. That has not changed, and so in essence, that threat that was there then is still there now.
1: So enter a person most people haven't heard of, Neil McElroy, Mm -hmm. who was a Secretary of Defense, uh, a very important Secretary of Defense. But before that, and I think that You do a great job in kind of laying out his personality a little bit. Uh, A lot of Secretary of Defenses, like McNamara, come from the world of academia, Mm -hmm. and they're statisticians. Or you get current Secretary of Defenses that are policy wonks. He wasn't in the defense world before he became Secretary of Defense. You even lay him out as a PR guru, Mm -hmm. somebody that uh, really understood how to do brand management. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about Mapperwood?
0: Of all things, he uh, invented the concept of the soap opera. And he was uh, a leading guy in the advertising department at P&G, and he was in charge of soaps. And he was try- they had four soaps that were competing with one another, and he thought, how are we going to sell more soap? Well, let's play during these soap operas. Um, and then he became the Secretary of Defense and a very powerful one at that.
1: Well, and, and, and that really comes in handy because one of the first things he has to do with is this idea of DARPA is not something that's very palatable to the military agencies, mm. to the Atomic Energy Commission, to the other organizations that it's competing with. And he has to convince all of them that this yes. is an idea that's worth doing.
0: Yes. Oh, there was serious pushback from the military agencies. Um, in some of these old ARPA documents, I found the you know McElroy would meet with the individual heads trying to convince them that ARPA was a great idea. The Army said no, 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 it should be our territory, military science and research, specifically space. They said the moon is just higher ground. And then the admirals um, in the Navy were saying, no, 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 space should be our territory because where the oceans end, space starts. Um, And so everybody had a reason why they wanted to control space, which was really why how ARPA came to be.
1: What fascinates me about this time period and about science in general is that even sometimes the scientists don't know what they've created. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily understand the magnitude. You talked about Castle Bravo. Mm -hmm. That was a much larger explosion than what was expected. Uh, I I focus on the Manhattan Project, and they had no idea whatsoever if that bomb was going to work during the Mm -hmm. Trinity test. They were taking bets. Would it set the atmosphere on fire? Would it not work at all? And the great story that you talk about here of the BMEWS, the, mm. uh, the, the the Ballistic Missile Early Warning System, and how that almost started World yes. War III, Can, without giving away half your book, yes. this is an anecdote I think is a wonderful. Can you please yes. kind of lay that out for us?
0: Yes. Yeah. So uh, ARPA set up a facility um, at the top of the world near the Thule uh, Air Force Base. It was about 15 miles north of it. and. Uh, the idea was that, that it was called J-Site, and it was going to be the place where we could watch for, uh, it, was a, it was a ballistic missile radar early warning site. And what w- I interviewed a fellow, as I do, I always try to tell my stories through individual people who were there. And there was a fellow named Gene McManus who was an uh, electronics technician, and he, the way he described it to me was our job was 90% boredom and 10% sheer terror and uh one of the first things that happened the j site had only been open a few days it was october of 1960 and the j site was connected directly to norad and uh there was this idea of you know level 1 level 2 level 3 Level Five was end game, but it always started if you were to get a notice that something was detected. it would always be level one, and it would usually you know go away. but the notice came in level three, and by the time the operator um, in Cheyenne Mountain was on the phone with you know the Joint Chiefs of Staff, it had escalated to level five, which meant with ninety nine point nine percent certainty we were under attack by a thousand ICBMs and you know, someone picked up the phone and what was determined, and the reason why I think this story is important is it talks a lot about humans versus computers because these were very early computers. And one of the humans in the mix said, wait a minute, where's Khrushchev? And someone said, why, he's in New York City, you know, banging his shoe at the UN. (laughs) And there was this moment when everyone said, there must be a mistake. And in fact, there was a mistake. And what had happened, someone up at J site said... Let's go out and someone look outside. And, of course, there was this giant moon coming up over Norway. And so this radar system had actually worked better than expected. It was supposed to detect missiles up to 3,000 feet, and it actually read the reflection of the moon a quarter of a million miles away (laughs) and bounced back and forth so many times those were the 1,000 ICBMs that were not coming. So disaster was averted by a human.
1: Yeah, early technology is Mm -hmm. always a little tricky. Mm -hmm. Here at the Spy Museum, we certainly focus on the the technological aspects of intelligence. And one of these is imagery intelligence. Mm -hmm. And DARPA was heavily influential in some of the first imagery intelligence satellites Mm -hmm. that were put into space. Uh, One of the fundamental jobs of DARPA was this early satellite program. Uh, And Corona, Mm -hmm. which some people may know about as the first Mm -hmm. real American satellite, uh, was inherited by DARPA from the Air Force. And they Mm -hmm. really saw that that program to fruition. Mm and the idea of like SIGINT satellites and imagery mm-hmm. satellites. Um, and you see these start to leak into the civilian world a, a little bit. Uh, and I don't, I'm not going to screw up the acronym mm-hmm. uh, of TIROS, Television Infrared mm-hmm. Observation Satellite Program. Uh, this is the first true weather
0: satellite. Yes. Well, that was, I mean, Eisenhower in particular loved that program. He was so amazed. And by then, NASA had actually inherited that satellite program that DARPA started. But um, these were these amazing images. It was in space for, I think, 79 days only. They were very short-lived, these early satellites. And it took something like 23,000 photographs above the Earth of the Earth. And just imagine, I mean, in this world where we always see so much from, with such big perspective, imagine back that idea that these were the first images of weather seen from space. And they were beautiful. And Eisenhower spoke of that. And I write about it. You know, uh, he saw, you know, what it looked like over Egypt. He saw what it looked like over the St. Lawrence River. He could see the whole world in these photographs. And he spoke to the nation about it, you know, with kind of a great pride. And then um, they became, you know, a big National Geographic spread. But it was a really interesting time, and not that long ago in the big picture of things, when we could first see things from space.
1: You had mentioned in your very beginning of your conversation that the DARPA essentially uses... Smartest scientists in the country, you mm-hmm. round up the top people. Uh, and this started from the very beginning. And I want to talk about one of these uh, assembled scientists that had a very particular name, the Jasons, mm-hmm. uh, because um, to me, this is something that uh, people just don't know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the amount of influence the Jasons had over American foreign policy, mm-hmm. still have today over American foreign policy, is, is pretty extraordinary. And the first Jasons were assembled right after Dark was assembled in one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine uh, led by a man named Charles Towns, who mm-hmm. uh, you may or may not know Charles Towns. he invented something very important mm-hmm. to us. but can you talk a little bit about the Jasons and, and what they do and, and kind of how their job has continued till today?
0: The Jasons began in one thousand nine hundred and sixty. Uh, as a group of... Well, they were referred to by their government handlers as the supermen of hard science. They were astrophysicists. They were nuclear physicists. They handled, tackled all the hard problems. And immediately when DARPA was founded, the idea was we need, exactly as you said, we need the best guys with the biggest minds. And for a while... Jason's only customer was ARPA, DARPA. Um, I had the great fortune of interviewing a fellow named Marvin Murph Goldberger, who was a presidential science advisor, was also the founder, co-founder of the Jasons. I write about him in the book he just passed. But um, it was interesting hearing his perspective we interviewed in 2013 and like his long lens of history working on these projects going back to the 60s the Jasons are so misunderstood as being these kind of some people consider them to be right up there with the Illuminati in terms of you know these guys cooking up these ideas but I actually found from reading their unclassified reports and interviewing some of them that they're they were very cautious in their work, and they, um, they were also full-time academics and part-time defense science scientists. They would only gather in the summers and discuss these big problems that the Secretary of Defense would put to them and say, sort this out. Right.
1: You know? and it wasn't the easy problems. It was the very, very difficult ones that nobody else could figure out, that they were handed like, hey we have no idea what to do with this. You fix it. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, their track record is pretty spectacular. Mm-hmm.
0: The, uh, I'll say the, the unclassified documents that, are, that you can read that I read are one thing, but the classified documents, some of the names of the documents have been declassified, only the names. But when you read them, you realize I couldn't understand that even if it was declassified. <laughs> I mean, just it is such literal, literally hard science.
1: DARPA really comes of age during the Vietnam War in um, a lot of they their trial by fire in many respects um, you know and a lot of the things that are, are you know looked at in Vietnam as being potentially problematic about the war uh, were things that DARPA either tried to get rid of or were the cause of in some respects mm-hmm. um, they were the first ones really to, to appreciate the idea of trying to defeat uh, a insurgency with technology. Yeah. Uh, maybe not the first one to think of it, but that was really their primary focus during Vietnam was to use high-tech in counterinsurgency yes. strategy. Um, can you talk a little bit about this, with the, the extent of things like psychological operations using soft mm-hmm. silence, like anthropology and sociology?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Vietnam was a very interesting time for for, the, for ARPA. And many different programs came out of it. I mean they were working on, as you say, soft science, anthropology programs. They were also working on conventional weapons. Uh, the AR-15 was a DARPA, a DARPA weapon that's now the M16. They were, you know, early gliders which kind of led to stealth technology. But the one that I found the most impactful was the idea of that sensor technology. Um, the Ho Chi Minh Trail was sort of the dreaded problem of the Pentagon and all of the fighters the insurgents would come from the north to the south by way of this trail and the secretary of defense tasked the jason scientists with figuring out a way to stop this i mean they really saw it almost like it was a human and it needed to you know have its artery severed um, and the jason scientists in a lot of their documents spoke about it that way i mean it was it was really like that was the locus and so They tried. They thought about nuclear weapons. That was not an option. Um, It was discussed. And then this idea of an electronic fence, which the reason that I write about this and found it so interesting to really explore was because all this sensor technology, you know, seismic sensors, which had, by the way, come from the Vela program that you referred to, audio sensors, magnetic sensors, um, these were incredibly early ideas during the Vietnam war and now they make up so much of right. our existence i mean i'm sure driving here somebody's windshield wipers just started to work you know as a drop of rain well that's essentially technology that goes back i uh, the way i see it to that vietnam war to the sensors that the Jasons were working on. It's massive
1: technology that still Mm -hmm. today is used throughout the intelligence agency but also in civilian practice. I'm sure one of us drove over one of the sensors on the ground to determine how fast we're going or anything else like that. Um, Vietnam was also a time where DARPA began to invest in some more questionable technologies. Uh, Agent Orange certainly Mm -hmm. is one of these technologies, but also things that I find very interesting as weather modification technologies. Mm. you know more devious things, but also more kind of outside the box thinking about potentially winning the war through uh, causing monsoons or changing mm-hmm. the ability of the Vietnamese to grow food and to move weapons from yes. point A to point B.
0: I mean, they were were and continue to be always at the cutting edge of science. And DARPA is an agency that's looking, you know, at the problem twenty years, twenty five years. Uh, they like. It's, it's spoken of as pre-requirement research. And that takes us again back to that idea of the military-industrial complex. It was one of the DARPA directors, Stephen Lukasik, who spoke to Congress after the Vietnam War when DARPA got in some trouble you know, by Congress saying, you guys are making weapons we don't need. And Lukasic's point, he called it the chicken-the-egg problem, he said, listen, if, if a need for a weapon system comes along and we haven't already developed it, there's a real problem. And that's the chicken and the egg problem.
1: I want to talk a little bit about civilian use of some of the technologies developed by DARPA. Because this is where the audience, if they hadn't heard of this agency before, will go, oh, that's where that's from. Mm -hmm. So let's start with, who is JCR Mm Licklider?
0: Licklider is often referred to as the Johnny Appleseed of the Internet. Um, He really is the man who is responsible for for what we have today as the Internet, that technology used by almost half the people on the planet. Um, And that began as an ARPA project. The Internet was originally called the ARPANET. And Licklider came to uh, the Pentagon, to ARPA, when, um, in 1962, when Congress decided there was a really big technology problem. And if you can imagine the idea of a red phone, that was the technology that President Kennedy and Khrushchev had to use, either one of them, to make that dreaded go-no-go nuclear decision. And mindful that there are 1,600 seconds till doomsday, imagine wasting 30 seconds trying to dial a rotary phone. And so the Pentagon said, we need command and control. And they hired, and Licklider came to ARPA specifically to work on this problem, this very hard problem. And he was a really eccentric thinker, and one of his early memos talked about this idea of an intergalactic network, where he was going to have all these computers that somehow spoke to each other and were tied together, and everyone sort of said, yeah, 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 work on the command and control right. problem. But later, of course, that materializes in a very big way, and that becomes the ARPANET, which is the internet. When well,
1: people have gone back, computer scientists have gone back and looked at some of Licklider's writings, and he essentially predicts cloud computing mm-hmm. in his earliest writings. I mean, this is, again, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat similar to mm-hmm. Alan Turing yes. talking about artificial intelligence that's nowhere near created even today, back during that time. Um, it, you know, it's it's hard not to talk about Licklider not only for the Internet, but also as a kind of a computer modeling pioneer mm-hmm. about how a lot of the data systems today are used to create models for either everything from war games to weather patterns Mm -hmm. and everything else. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes, and many
0: people um, do not know that about Licklider, and he did have... You know, I often wonder, and I write this in the book, I wonder what his intentions were because he was very liberal in his thinking and very transparent. I mean, obviously, he had this idea of sharing everything. But at the same time, he was involved in one of the more controversial programs of the Vietnam War, which had to do with behavior modeling with computers. So the new computer systems over in Thailand at the information centers were gathering information based on these Licklider ideas of behavior modeling. So we would... For example, you know, keep track of what certain villagers were doing in these various strategic Hamlet programs, feed that information into these giant computers with the idea that down the road we could track these individuals, find them, follow them, see how they wound up. And this gets into very um, awkward territory, I think, for the Pentagon today having to do with surveillance programs. Because they do linked to one another. You can
1: see a lineage, yes. a clear lineage, yes. absolutely.
0: Yes. Who, who is
1: Jack Thorpe? Because I think Thorpe kind yes. of builds upon a lot of what Licklider yes. was doing before.
0: Well, and not to embarrass but we have Neil Cosby here today who is working with um, Jack Thorpe. After the Internet, uh, the uh, you know this idea came around that computers were incredibly helpful and that um, they could be used as a training tool. And so Jack Thorpe had this idea of creating... Uh, you know, a a system, instead of using an old sand table to have generals make ideas, it could be computerized. And this was profound thinking. Um, And also Thorpe was not cleared on the ARPANET at that point, so it's really prescient of him. Um, and, And it eventually became an ARPA program. Wired Magazine referred to Jack Thorpe as the father of of cyberspace, in essence, because that civilian technology that everyone knows today and the ch- everyone's children in the audience probably works on the MMOGs and plays these games, these giant systems find their origin in the program that Jack Thorpe and Neil Cosby ended up running at IDA for the generals at the Pentagon who wanted to uh, play those games and throw a little stealth in. Um, to the equation. And
1: that filtered all the way down to the ground level. I mean, I as I was in the Army as a tanker, and mm. I was on SimNet with wow. other thousands wow. of other people around okay. the country working together. So uh, that jumped out of yes. me, certainly, in the book as well. Uh, there are other civilian technologies, like GPS mm-hmm. is a, a DARPA brainchild, as mm-hmm. are non-lethal technologies used for like SWAT teams and uh, things like that. You can get, kind of close out this conversation mm-hmm. about the civilian use with a couple uh of those technologies.
0: GPS is an amazing one. And it also, you know, one thing that DARPA does so well, and this has to do with the this from the scientists and engineers that I spoke with, so many of them almost all of them are incredibly gung-ho DARPA, and they talk about how DARPA finds the solutions to things. And DARPA allows scientists to push science in a way that maybe their industry bosses wouldn't allow them to because it might not seem like such a good idea. But DARPA thinking of the future, DARPA likes to say DARPA makes the future happen. But another thing that they do is they... Um, And this is sort of in the spirit of how Eisenhower created or saw this uh, initial idea, was that it would cut out inter-service rivalry, GPS being a great example of that. Originally, an ARPA program, they lofted these satellites. um, And then in the 70s, the Navy started having its own GPS program, and so did the Air Force. And then... The orders came from the Pentagon that said, "Wait a minute, this is not working the way it should as one system for all the agencies and so DARPA was put back on the program, and then ultimately, they created a system called Navstar, which is the GPS that we have today. There was a fascinating detail that I did not know that GPS was working away. We all just didn 't know about it and didn 't use it is yes, and it had a little feature because it was a targeting um, idea that was what the military application was, but it had a Feature built in called selective availability. So if someone in Europe, let's say, or Asia could very easily hack into the system, um, the Pentagon didn't want them to know for targeting reasons how close it was. So they created about a hundred or 150 foot offset. And then in the um, early 90s, moving toward the late 90s, Europe started developing GPS and saying, "Well, we're going to create an industry with this." And then President Clinton. Uh, made the system public, got rid of the the SA feature, and because America could greatly benefit from having that technology, just ask Google. Um, And so now we all have GPS, although it has been around for quite some time. And that was
1: a fascinating detail in the book that I didn't know Mm -hmm. about either. I I was in the military before Clinton took away Mm. uh, that feature, and we always wondered why we couldn't use civilian GPS because they were much smaller. I mean, even at that time, so GPS yeah. and the pluggers, which is the, what yeah. we called the big military GPS, like, no, you got to use that one. And we're like, now I know why I couldn't use You'd a miss small you your target by and, several yeah, hundred we feet. Yeah, would have been way off. Yeah. Um, let's move a little bit into the modern period, as we already am. Um, and, and I think things that we use, or that are used, I said Weeb is a mixed military, see everywhere on a modern battlefield. Mm-hmm. Oh, their existence in many ways to DARPA. Mm-hmm. Things like night vision and thermals. Mm-hmm things like stealth technology and laser guided munitions things like drones they mm-hmm. talk a little bit about this? drones are mm-hmm. something that we here at the spy museum pay a mm-hmm. lot of attention to they talk a little bit more about how a lot of the current military technology is because of this agency mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: DARPA is very much about brilliance and hubris. It's about these incredible, in my estimation, it's about these incredible programs. It's about pushing science. And so one must really ask questions about where we are now. And looking at the technology that we have now, looking at that drone technology that came out of Vietnam. So this is a decades-old technology. And mindful of that idea that we're always ahead. So when drones hit the battlefield in Afghanistan, we were allegedly the only nation who had armed drones, and now 186 nations have armed drones. So in essence, the predator is obsolete in some regard. Um, so the question is, what's next? Right. And that idea, when you really look at DARPA, you know, moving information technology, biotechnology, which we did not have a, a time to discuss. I write about it at length in the book. Uh, nanotechnology, the art of making things small. What I learned from... Unclassified pent- Pentagon documents is that the agency is really moving, or rather, the Pentagon is moving toward autonomous warfare. That is the plan for twenty-five years out, and that is the idea of self-governance and drones and the way that uh, the Pentagon sees it is a, is a four-part step. You know, we start with you know remote control, and we move toward governance. Right. And so this gets into some heady territory because there are questions about. Ethics, and there are questions about robots that can do things without an operator in the loop. But these are certainly all places where where DARPA technology is taking us. Well,
1: and if DARPA scientists have their way in 25 years, a human on the battlefield will not be fully human.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Artificial human enhancement. The mm-hmm. the all of the projects DARPA is working on. Let's not use the word cyborg, but let's you know the idea mm-hmm. of you know brainwave interfaces and mm-hmm. uh, cybernetics. These are things that. Uh, You know, 10 years ago are the realm of science fiction Mm -hmm. and now are becoming truer and truer every day.
0: Well, I would use the word cyborg, but DARPA uses the word (laughs) biohybrid, and that's an idea um, where you couple uh, animal with machine. And DARPA has already been able to do that in these amazing ways with a rat, um, you know, electrodes in in the brain, being able to remotely control a rat, now a moth. And so from these Pentagon documents, what is clear is that it's moving humans in the military environment toward being comfortable with this idea of merging man and machine. That makes a lot of people uncomfortable, it makes a lot of other people excited. It just depends where you fall along the lines of transhumanism, this idea that essentially uh, we can now create our own evolution. We can engineer our own evolution. Now,
1: it may sound like science fiction. Mm -hmm. I thought that was one of the interesting things you talk about in the book is the sigma group, which are actual science fiction writers that have been brought in to work with DARPA to think about the future in some cases. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. there. Are, I mean, the Pentagon loves science fiction writers. They're thinking right along the lines of, you know, the ideas of the future. I mean, Charles Towns, you mentioned him earlier. Um, he invented the laser, and he won the Nobel Prize for it in 1964. And when I was not getting many answers about laser weapons from present people at the Pentagon. They're very highly classified for obvious reasons. I had a discussion with Towns who was still giving interviews, age 98, at his office at Berkeley. It was really an incredible interview. Um, But he told me that the way he got the idea for inventing the laser... Now considered one of the most important technologies of the present day, for military and civilian use. But the way Ta- Towns got the idea was way back in 1926, when he was a little boy in bed reading a, a, a science fiction book called *The Garin Death Ray*, and that inspired him to create the laser. So no wonder the Pentagon is interested in science fiction.
1: Absolutely. Um, you've talked uh, several times about Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, anyone who, kn- who listens to anything you've talked about tonight, who read your book, who knows a little bit about DARPA, has to be concerned at some level about the influence of the billions and billions of dollars being spent uh, by the defense industry. And you even say in your book, and you talk about the idea, that the people who are pulling many of the purse strings, the Defense Science Board, they're not made up of scientists or engineers. In many cases, they're made mm-hmm. up of... Well, they are, but they're scientists and engineers from Boeing and Lockheed Martin and defense industries. Um, is that something we should be concerned about? Is that something that has changed in any way? Is that how mm-hmm. DARPA was in the beginning? Or is it much to do about nothing? Or is this something that is going to mean a continued militarization? Uh, I sound like a tree hugging... Yeah, mm-hmm. I am a little bit, but I sound more than oh, I'm yeah. trying to. Um, it... it how, how does this dynamic work? Mm-hmm. Is this is this mm-hmm. potentially problematic as we move forward? Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, it's an important question, and I certainly raise it at the end of the book. I mean, I always keep in mind that my job as as a journalist is to report the facts to the public. It's hard when you get to the end to not have some conclusions. I think people like that as they stay with you through this narrative. And so one of the conclusions that I ask people to contemplate is exactly... The, what you're talking about. And that is the idea of the military-industrial complex having a little bit too much power. I mean, Eisenhower warned against it in his 1961 speech, but he also said that the two ideas could live together. As long as you have an alert and knowledgeable citizenry, you can have this powerful military-industrial complex. And I believe they interchange. The problem that I came across was actually had to do with the Jason scientists. When I went to interview a a very sort of famous program manager from DARPA who was responsible for a lot of this transhumanism early programs in in 1990, 2000. And and we were discussing the, the brain implant programs that are moving man, you know, merging man with machine in ways that make some people uncomfortable. And I said to him about, you know, I had read a Jason report that the Jason scientists had counseled the Pentagon that this was a bad idea that we should not be putting brain chips in people's brains, in essence, because it could lead toward brain control. That's the Jason scientists, the supermen of science. That's their assessment, not mine. Um, You know, the steerable moth, the steerable rat, could essentially become the steerable human. And I was told that the Jason scientists aren't really relevant anymore, that what is the group that has become more important is the Defense Science Board, who is an in-house Pentagon think tank, And, you know, they advise the president. I mean, they're very knowledgeable supermen of science in their own right, question mark. Because what is also true is that unlike the Jason scientists who were full-time academics and part-time defense scientists, the defense science board members, as their list explains, are defense contractors, and they sit on the boards of a lot of these defense contractors. Which raises the question that Eisenhower raised, not me, which is, let's make sure that the citizenry maintains a, a knowledge that they're aware of what the military-industrial complex is planning to do.
1: In that same speech where he warns about the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex, he warns about the scientific-technological elite mm-hmm. having yes. unwarranted influence over the country mm-hmm. as well. Well, we're going to open it up to questions from you. Uh, wait one sec. Wait, please raise your hand. We are going to have microphones coming around so they can be picked up by uh, by the cameras. Um, Laura is grabbing them right now, so if you keep your hands up, they will come to you. All right, yep, right over there, and then we see you here as well. Yes, sir. So do you have any examples of where the influence goes the other way, where the DARPA scientists are seeing something that's going on in the civilian world and kind of build upon it and create mm-hmm. uh, technology?
0: Um, yes, that's a great question. I mean, The place where I observed that had to do with a situation in the war on terror in Iraq where DARPA created a program called Combat Zones That See. And the idea was to use that advanced sensor technology, what was once the Vietnam electronic fence, is now the combat zone that can see. So it's multi-angle drones, overhead sensors on the ground, cameras, to really get an idea of this urban warfare environment which is so difficult to defend against and from what i understand is uh the pentagon darpa followed the google maps model and sent contractors into the field um to map the territory the very similar to how google maps had done and of course now we know there are those partnerships as well
1: Uh, up here amanda
0: Thank you so much for your first two. I'm looking forward to this one. I was on a consultant team with a man who consulted for DARPA also, who I believe was a paperclip scientist. And my question is, were there many paperclip scientists involved with DARPA, and how were they vetted? That's a great question. In all of my research, I did not come across any of the paperclip scientists, which by no means means they weren't there, because there were so many of them, and they were so involved in many of these programs. But um, that that is a great question. You stumped me.
1: But there were there yeah. were foreigners that were in mm-hmm. adjacent and worked with DARPA. Some of the earliest, like Hans Bethe and Edward mm-hmm. Teller, were were not you know, natural-born American citizens. Right. So they, they didn't have any kind of discrimination against people who were born in other countries, mm-hmm. uh, people who had worked, obviously, for Manhattan Project mm-hmm. and other places mm-hmm. as well. So there's... Again, I haven't yeah. seen it either. you know, in
0: Actually, I'm going to change that because there's one name that I did come across, Hans Ziegler. He worked at Fort Monmouth in some of the electron. Yes, uh-huh. yes, so...
1: Yeah. Uh, back there, Amanda.
0: Hi, so um, the...
1: When you go back to the brain implant uh, programming, um, what about the use of robots? Like, where is the military thinking of that first? Or are they thinking of, or I guess they have to think of everything at the same time? But robots are already out in you know other markets and other parts of the world. So where are they gonna? When are they gonna implement them on the battlefield? Um, and how much will human? Uh, how much will it be of like a human needing to control that or? will it need at all? Like, will that be
0: a case? Um, well, there are so many DARPA robots in play presently, and, and uh, you can go to the DARPA website and see these amazing videos. I mean, they crawl, they walk, they climb, they can fall over and get back up. Um, they're up in space. They're this big. There's robotics um, across every military service. And certainly. Plans. The Pentagon plans of uh, unmanned warfare through twenty thirty eight indicate this movement. As I was saying, this four step movement from, you know, remote control to governance. And I think a lot of
1: a lot of the place where people may have heard the name DARPA is mm-hmm. the DARPA Robotics Challenge, mm-hmm. which happens yes. every year and it's this, now it's become this massive thing with different countries mm-hmm. and everything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, right up here, Amanda.
0: Fascinating talk. Thank you. Thank you for the good moderating.
1: Um, What are some of the ways that DARPA morphs its its projects into the greater public sector? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Technology distribution, I guess you would call it. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I mean, we talked about two of them, the Internet and GPS. And if you mean specifically, how do they just say... Now it's out there. I mean, I, from what I understand, it's a decision as it was with GPS, like Clinton and Gore, and then they decide who's going to make the announcement, and then someone does. And it's a few phone calls, and it's a declassification yes, yes, issue yes. in
1: many cases. In papers,
0: it's yes. yes.
1: It's also a case, and you've even you've said this in your talk, that when other countries have established this technology by themselves, then it's no longer something that needs to stay classified. Uh, GPS, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, was a good example of this, where the Europeans Mm -hmm. and others were putting up satellites. So there was no need necessarily to keep our program classified Mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, Over there, Laura. Hi. Uh, What's the level of cooperation between DARPA and uh, JSOC in the War on Terror?
0: Well, I mean, I think DARPA cooperates with everyone because DARPA – from my understanding of talking to individuals, for example, in that organization, is everybody wants what DARPA has because it has all the best stuff. And so I think that it, and it goes both ways um, in as much that, well, well, I write about a couple different programs in the book where you have like a team, a DARPA team. Um, there was a program, I want to say it's Nexus 7, but it's not, that, uh, it, no, it's the DEFT program. That DARPA guys went in with JSOC in Afghanistan, um, unclear about you know how that actually worked. I'm sure that stuff is still classified, but most definitely cooperation, from my understanding, with all the military services. Hi
1: there. This may be an unfair question, and if it is, you can just tell me to shut up. But with all these interesting ideas and leads, um, where are you going, what is your next book going to be? Since it seems that um, one leads to the next, or your next book's out of all this um, effort on DARPA.
0: Well, I do always keep it a little um, under the sleeve until I until I write the next book. But the one thing I can say is I always love writing about how the agency and uh, military intelligence work together because there's always this idea that they, that they, that they don't. And it's my understanding that they really do. So the next book involves a program that was CIA and DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency.
1: That's more than I would have told. That's where we could. Yeah. But there's so <laughs> we, many programs you will never know. Yes.
0: We,
1: we could have had so them turn hard off hard to hard. the C-SPAN camera, and you could have said something more. I I have one over here. Oh, one over there.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, just a quick question. Uh, thanks for the talk. Uh,
1: there's a lot of people from DARPA, Herb York, uh, William Godel, who, uh, you know,
0: were in various positions in government before and after DARPA. You know, the Psychological Strategy Board. Herb York went on to be the chief Mm -hmm. arms negotiator. Can you talk about uh, DARPA as kind of a germinator for senior managers in DOD, maybe its broader impact on Mm -hmm. policy and people who went on to much Mm -hmm. higher positions? Um, Well, that's a great question. I mean, it really speaks to how important science and technology is at the Pentagon, and, of course, the current Secretary of Defense being a, a, a scientist and a technologist. But I think the first one, or I know the first one, was Harold Brown. And he came directly from Livermore. He was at Livermore age 24. He was Herb York's protege. And then when he went to the Pentagon, he was the person to whom all the DARPA um, people reported to during the Vietnam War. And then in 1977, he became Secretary of Defense, a very, very important Secretary of Defense, and in essence created um, a really important DARPA concept called a Breaker. Which you know I write about in the book, which you know, absolutely dom- allowed the. US military to dominate in Gulf War I, and that was all science and technology driven. And I think that, sec- that when Harold Brown was Secretary of Defense, he was able to get money into the arena that didn't exist before by, you know, certainly what the, the historians at Ida say, by creating an entire industry around technology at the Pentagon.
1: question, Annie. You alluded to the linkages between DARPA and the intelligence community. In your research, did you ever run across any instances where DARPA benefited from uh, espionage, either providing the seeds of later research or suffered from espionage where, as you said, they've got the good stuff. Other people want to get access to it. Thank
0: you. Boy, that's a great question. I don't know of, um, you know, DARPA being infiltrated by any spies, in essence. I, I don't know. Um, but I do know in the other way, certainly there's an incredible interplay, because these programs are so, you know, interwoven, science and technology and intelligence. Um, but I think, you know, I, there was one interesting interview that I did with, because, of course, the CIA has its own DARPA now. It's called IARPA. And I interviewed uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Project Agency, and they worked together a lot. But I did interview someone who was involved in the early organization of IARPA and presenting that idea to Congress. And what he told me was that um, the intelligence community was very much wowed by DARPA and what DARPA was able to do and wanted their own model. And so they really modeled themselves after DARPA.
1: And it's even modeled, even, I mean, it's almost taking DARPA back to its core, Mm -hmm. where IARPA is just putting out contracts and contracts Mm -hmm. and contracts for people to bid on the ability to do advanced quantum computing and a lot Mm -hmm. of these things that are so whiz bang Mm -hmm. that even five years ago, no one was thinking that way. And, you know, IARPA is taking that to that next level of saying, we want people thinking 30, 40 years down the road, much in the way DARPA does as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Back here.
1: Hi. Would you tell us a bit more about how DARPA is organized, what, how one comes to join DARPA, how long you are there? Is it an appointment process or recruitment, things like that?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, it, there's generally 120 program managers. Usually people stay for, it's. this is sort of the way it's said, five years. We do have someone in the audience who has been there for decades. Um, so, you know that is the that is the structure allegedly but I, I would also remind everyone that um, as with all of these agencies, you know, the information that is given is not all, is is often is, on, is only part of the story. So we know that DARPA is very much free of red tape and bureaucracy and because as you said earlier, they don't they don't make things themselves. They farm it all out. So it allows them this flexibility. Um, But they do have an awfully large building um, that not many reporters get into. So who knows what's really going on in there.
1: Back over there. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, um, how is DARPA today involved with the cyber war? Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Leading all efforts. um, If you look at the budget, um, you can see how many of the programs are Uh, trying to defend against cyber warfare. I think it's interesting that perhaps the only vulnerability I have ever heard the Pentagon speak of is cyber warfare. In other words, the Pentagon is very clear that we have this supremacy everywhere, but admits that cyber warfare is an enormous threat. And so I think that's, um, I don't think DARPA could possibly be doing enough in that area. I imagine that they are.
1: When cyber now is the number Mm -hmm. one potential threat to the United Mm -hmm. States, it's Mm -hmm. supplanted terrorism Mm -hmm. as a number one threat. So people are paying attention, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of money going to it, certainly. Mm -hmm. Any last questions? Oh, there is one in the back. Yeah, hi. I just wanted to know uh, a bit about uh, how do you see uh, commercialization and sort of the privatization that now private companies have access to satellites and a lot of the information, well, technology and information that previously was put to the military. And do you think that DARPA still has the edge so that, for instance, a foreign state can foreign power can't use private companies to acquire the intelligence the U.S. and the... Challenge the technolo- technological superiority of the US do you think DARPA still has the edge in
0: that sense? I, I would I'm sure DARPA has the edge. Um, <laughs> they all have incredible satellite programs, including one that's you know lofting satellites, reusable um, technologies. So I think that the whole idea of what's happening in space is having this resurgence. Now that's very similar to what it was back in nineteen fifty eight I mean nowhere is more important than satellite technology and since DARPA's job is to keep the nation safe from technological surprise, uh, one can only imagine how much uh, how much DARPA is looking up
1: Well, DARPA's always worked with private companies as you know part of their organizational mm-hmm. structure, and so We don't know necessarily if a private company is getting technological advantages on their own or through money from DARPA or somewhere else. So it's nothing we're ever going to be told. My kids may know one day about it, but not anytime soon. Any final questions? I always enjoy reading the acknowledgement sections of the books. I was just curious about your process for writing the book and it didn't sound as if DARPA cooperated in your research, so you had to uh, identify sources that were willing to cooperate. So can you just talk about the process for doing the research and writing the book?
0: Um, I always love talking to scientists and engineers who work on these programs. And uh, I do write about these seemingly impenetrable subjects and it is a common question of how do you get your sources. and I always carry with me an idea that goes back to my, when I wrote my book about Area 51 that a scientist named Ed Lovick who worked with you know, Richard Bissell of the CIA and Bud Whelan, early um, CIA pioneer in, in space and in surveillance. And Lovick told me two things. He said, one, fortune favors the prepared mind. So if you always, you know, and that's quoting Pasteur, but if you're always on top of your information and you keep current about things that are interesting to you, then people essentially gravitate toward you to share their stories with you. And he also told me to look up. And that's a a physicist's concept because these supermen of of science are always looking up for the answers. I mean, whether it's bats or birds or the moon or the cosmos, the answer lies from, you know, above. And what Lovick was also saying to me was, you know, go higher up. And he told me that if someone, if a source, doesn't want to talk to you, it's probably that they're too low down and that they can't, and seek out their boss. And I have found in this way that I find wonderful and inspiring and important that the greatest minds, these scientists and engineers, uh, the Bud Wheelons of the world, the Charles Towns of the world, the Murph Goldberger, the Neil Cosby's, you know, people who have knowledge and information are willing to share it if you ask the questions. So maybe the DARPA press office isn't going to give me the information, but surely 70 some odd scientists did for this book, as they do for all of my books. And I think that's the wonderful thing about um, about when you get old and you look back on your life, as so many of these older sources of mine do, you say to yourself, what can I share with my country that I have spent so much time you know, dedicating my life to.
1: Was this vetted at all by the Pentagon or anyone else? Or? People
0: ask that question. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm a civilian. So I don't, well,
1: we do Yeah, we, we, we tend to have a lot yeah. of ex-agency yeah. types here who yes. have to go yeah. through uh, no. lots of hurdles before they it, can do anything. It's a free so
0: country, and I can It's, I can it's a major
1: question from yeah. me for yes. most yes. of the authors. Like, yes. who looked at this? Yes. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah, right down here. She's coming. Okay.
0: And a lot of part of the book you write about the fear mm-hmm. among some, particularly the ethics community, of the uh, robots taking over, mm-hmm. uh, and
1: mm-hmm. we lose control. Mm-hmm. Uh, having been through this now
0: for three or four years, do you share that? I here's what I think. I begin the book with the idea that scientists created a weapon against which there is no defense. And two of those scientists, uh, Enrico Fermi and Rabi, both wrote to the President of the United States, Truman at the time, this weapon should not be made. It is an evil thing. That is what they called it. Because they feared that there would be no defense against it. We have lived all these decades you know, with sort of like, I hope it doesn't happen. And it hasn't. But we're at a parallel situation now, in my mind, and also the minds of many scientists I've interviewed who who think about this question. Should we be afraid of artificial intelligence? And the idea among the smartest scientists in the world is an overwhelming majority that that, too, could be a weapon against which there is no defense. And therefore... Limits must be in place. And so my fear comes from a shared concern that comes from very smart individuals.
1: Very, very smart. Elon Musk and Bill Gates and others talking about that. Yeah, absolutely. Any last questions? Oh, they're right there, Lauren. Hello and good evening. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and for the chance for all of us to have an audience with you. But in regards to uh, the military-industrial complex, um, what are your thoughts on how uh, citizens uh, can stay well-informed so that uh, the powers stay balanced Mm -hmm. balanced and things do not go awry? Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, doing exactly what you're doing, thanks for coming tonight. You know, I think just by participating in discussions – Reading. I mean, so much is out there thanks to Licklider and, and the internet and all the books we have. And here in America, we can just read, 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 read. And I think that just maintaining a knowledgeable basis gives you a participation in society um, that's absolutely imperative. Some people choose to go become, you know, advocates of certain things, others just remain aware. And maybe it's how they vote, or how they think, or how they speak, or how they share their ideas with others. But I think you're doing a great job sitting here tonight.
1: Well, on that note, thank you, Annie, for mm-hmm. taking the time to come to us. Uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this Author Debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings. And thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here.